This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And Kevin, it's been 30 years, 27 movies. I want to know, does Pixar still have the juice or are they full of hot air? So you're asking me, are there storm clouds on the horizon or are they keeping the artistic flame burning brightly? Have they planted themselves firmly in rich soil of good storytelling? How many different elemental references can I possibly cram into this cold open? I don't know, but the number of puns you just threw in there are making me feel kind of like a drip because I can't come up with any more. And that's okay. <laughs> Listeners, on this week's episode, we are going to be discussing Pixar's newest film, Elemental. We're going to be pairing it with Sarah's pick for the watch list of Kelly Freeman Craig's 2016 film, The Edge of Seventeen. And don't rake me over the coals for this one, but I think I'm all out of puns. Yeah, we are definitely running out of steam. Stick with us, listeners. We've got a good one on episode 387 of Seeing and Believing. Meet the residents of Element City. Air usually has their head in the clouds. Oh, my new jacket. Earth can be a little seedy. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing weird going on here. Uh, Just a little pruning. Water is always getting into something. (laughs) Help! And fire? As ordered. We run a little hot. This shop is dream of our family. Someday it'll all be yours. But we all live by one simple rule. Elements cannot mix. Uh, uh, Pipe squished me all out of shape. Dang. That's better. Oh. We're here on episode 387 of Seeing and Believing, and we are going to try to keep kind of the the puns down to a minimum, at least for this first segment. I make no guarantees. You make, Okay, well, Sarah makes no guarantees. I'm going to make guarantees for myself because I don't want to subject anybody to <laughs> whatever my subconscious drags up. So we'll, we'll stick to the straight and narrow, at least uh, here. We are, of course, going to be talking about the new Pixar film Elemental here in the first segment, followed up, of course by your watch list pick the edge of 17 so i'm looking forward to hearing what connections were existing between those two mm-hmm, definitely they they exist they're there they're maybe a little bit galaxy brained though yeah we'll get there i'm looking forward to hearing about those but for now let's talk about elemental so this is the latest high concept adventure from pixar it's set in a world where the four elements air earth water and fire take the form of persons, and live together in the big melting pot city of Element City. 
Our heroine is a fire person named Ember, voiced by Leah Lewis, whose parents immigrated to Element City to start a new life and a convenience store. She meets water person Wade, voiced by Mamadou Ache, when his inspection of the shop's building leads to the possibility of the business being shut down for good. And in the grand tradition of every movie in which a business is endangered, they go on an adventure to save the business and also maybe learn a little bit something about themselves in the process. That's kind of the the bird's eye view of it. It gets There's a lot more going on uh, in this film besides just sort of a bare bones description of the plot. And that's kind of maybe where I wanted to start with our discussion because, like I said, this is a high concept kind of movie. There's lots of metaphor going on with the way the different elements interact, the way they all live in a city and how that mirrors various, has various real world parallels, I mm-hmm. guess. So I'm curious to know, Sarah, for you, um, as you were watching this film and were being wowed by the visuals, because this is Pixar, we kind of expect that almost as a matter of course. But I'm wondering, uh, with that metaphorical thematic layer that's going on underneath or maybe on top of those visuals, uh, how did that all work for you? Yeah, I'm kind of of two minds about this. Um I think the movie's a little bit too high concept for its own good, which is really unfortunate because, again, it is beautiful. And it feels almost rote to say that because it's a Pixar movie, it is beautiful as a matter of fact. But it is gorgeous. And I don't want to gloss over that necessarily. But at the same time, the visuals feel almost as though they're taking a back seat to the metaphor that they serve. And I found that kind of disappointing because there are so many metaphors flying around supported by this idea of different element people all populating the same city that the metaphors themselves both felt kind of perfunctory and also a little bit muddled. And they kept shifting over the course of the movie. So we start off with the ele- the different elements being sort of analogs for an immigration story. And then they also become analogs for potentially like interracial dating. And then there's also analogs for, you know, civics and city planning, which I found to be kind of an interesting side quest throughout the course of this whole movie. Um, and then they sort of all culminate in just what is it like for different people to be in relationship with each other, like people with different cultural backgrounds, but also just different people and people who come from different families as well. And I think when you throw all of those things into a blender, maybe it could potentially work, but I don't think it works in this movie. And I think it's because so much weight is put on the individual elements and using those things as metaphors for themselves that I kind of lost why this movie, like what the point was of the movie in the first place. It almost felt as though the movie was trying to impart some sort of a lesson because of all of these elements running around and the metaphors that they they represent. And at the same time, a lot of Pixar's visual technology literally just exists just to exist. And I think those two things are in tension with each other. And I find that kind of disappointing because it left me a little puzzled by the use of the metaphor in the first place, and then also a little bit disappointed that Pixar's visuals were kind of shunted off to the side. So I'm curious to know if you had a similar reaction or a different reaction. Yeah, I I feel like there's a lot of really individually very effective moments and ideas throughout the movie um, where 
the the animators and the and the storytellers this was directed by uh, peter Sohn, who uh is his previous pixar film was the good dinosaur I which believe. i have not seen that's one of the few pixars i haven't gotten around to same same here actually so okay. we're, we're in the same boat so i i can't comment on how much of you know uh his sensibility uh has found its way into into this film as compared to that one but i i do feel like um there are moments where this film really lands on on some very powerful ways in which kind of the the conceit of elements living together in a in a city and being personified uh pay some pretty rich dividends um the the immigrant story is very effective and probably i think is the most effective way that they find to make this metaphor work just in terms of the pressures that ember feels to uh kind of to stay true to what her traditional fire person culture um seems to be asking of her versus kind of her desire to maybe forge her own path um and you know kind of find herself in a way um and the the tension the that that produces inside her and that she really is kind of caught between a rock and a hard place I found to be tremendously absorbing. Um, I think maybe where I'm kind of tripping up, and it might be similar to the problem you mentioned, is just I feel like the central metaphor is put to a lot of different uses. And as a result, it feels like the the central metaphor of four elements living together in a city, and they're all very different from each other, it's it's being pulled in so many different rep, uh, representational directions that it's difficult to know what kind of what you're supposed to be focusing on at any given time. Mm-hmm. I feel it it feels a little bit to me like Inside Out in that way, mm-hmm. which I like very much. But Inside Out kind of also had a similar thing going on where the um, central conceit is just so blatantly representational and allegorical that it kind of threatens to overwhelm the the characters and kind of the the character based storytelling that's going on there and i feel like that's maybe exacerbated even further in this movie it might be a little unfair to compare elemental to inside out because inside out also has the central conflict being the character of riley not wanting to move to a new place and that's it and it's very simple and you have all of the different emotions kind of at war with each other as they're trying to figure out, well, what is their place in this new location and how can they best support the person in whom they live? And that sounds convoluted to say it out loud, but that is still a very simple through line for the story. And here, Elemental feels almost more like a hangout movie in places and the focus shifts from stage to stage. And maybe that's a good thing because the movie isn't following a very strict three-act structure necessarily. Like, I'm, I'm definitely on board with not following the rote, we have to tell a story in this specific way. But where the movie did lose me was in that metaphor getting shifted from place to place and location to location as the story took on different shapes. Maybe the metaphor kind of got a little bit diluted or lost a little bit of its power. Um, Which, again... (sighs) It's not necessarily a bad thing to have all of these elements representing different ideas. It just didn't feel particularly focused to me. Well, I think part of the problem is that the the two main ways, I guess, that the, the elemental metaphor gets put to use 
are kind of almost working at cross purposes. So hmm. on the one hand, you've got kind of the the romance between Ember and Wade that develops over the course of the film. And in that case, you know, uh, they're fire and water and there's concerns about how they'll fit. And it's a very individual story. And in that sense, their elemental natures kind of, it's a very individualized um, uh, metaphor. Like that, you know, Ember is... Pr- as a particular way and weight is a particular way and the way that fire and water sort of are used as metaphors to represent those personality traits uh is one thing but then you've also got this uh overarching allegory about you know ethnic tensions and immigrant stories and xenophobia mm-hmm. where the elemental metaphor is used to represent entire groups of people mm-hmm. and i think that's maybe where it becomes a little bit muddled because you're not sure how far you can follow you know fire has certain unalterable properties being sort of that works one way when you're talking about an individual with certain ingrained personality traits and it reads a different way when you're talking about an entire culture with certain baseline fundamental worldviews perhaps but also individuals who exist within that milieu yeah and maybe that's where i got a little bit tripped up with this one um part of me was wondering like is this actually the first time that any of the fire people have left fire town as wade and ember go about the city trying to find the solution to potentially closing up her father's shop it feels like it's a historic first that nobody else is commenting on throughout the rest of the movie and that i think threw me a little bit off probably more than it should have and you you can same as with inside out you can go a little bit crazy if you try to follow some of these these rabbit holes to their logical ends with the metaphor you can also go a little crazy thinking about you know the realism of the cars universe or something too so probably best not to think about pixar a little bit too much and probably to enjoy some of those visuals but i think the way that this movie touches on very real world experiences in a way that I do think is quite meaningful, especially with the immigrant story and the child of immigrants stories. I don't know. It feels like it's both a thoughtful metaphor and also in a few ways, probably an underbaked one. And I'm really not entirely sure how to square that circle. I also felt as though I could sort of see where this movie was going probably from about the halfway point. And the thing that got me was that the movie still got me (laughs) Um, towards (laughs) the end. I got very emotional towards the end of the film. I knew what was going to happen. I just didn't quite know how Pixar was going to go about telling that story. And I think the thing that I did very much appreciate was that despite the fact that there are parts of the story that felt fairly predictable, Pixar was still able to express those emotional truths for these characters in a way that still managed to catch me off guard. And I'll admit, I may or may not have cried in the matinee. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, there's part of me that feels like there are certain uh, elements of, (laughs) of, of a Pixar movie that they have down to a science, right? Like they know how to uh, find uh, visual expressions of certain themes in ways that are very powerful and they know how to animate them and uh, score them in in ways that, you know, they tug on your heartstrings. And 
I paradoxically, I think that might be where I'm beginning to grow a little bit disenchanted with Pixar's because it does feel a little bit like it's a science mm-hmm. rather than it's an art. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I I couldn't shake the feeling watching Elemental that I was watching a movie that a lot of very talented people got together in a room and sort of you know sketched out on a whiteboard how it was going to go or maybe maybe it would be more accurate to say that a lot of talented people kind of went off into separate pods and came up with their own take on this central element metaphor hmm. and then they came back together and they kind of crafted a move movie out of that and you know s- soldered it all together so the seams weren't very visible but still kind of at the end of the day feels to me like it it's um a space capsule that's been sort of welded together by different uh, teams working in tandem rather than an expression of something more spontaneous and Mm. individual. Hmm. And, you know, film is a collaborative process, so I don't want to necessarily say like there's one person who should kind of be the grand visionary behind a film. But with Pixar, I feel like it's almost the opposite extreme where at least with Elemental, it felt like, there's a lot of really individual moments that work well, but by the end of the film, it kind of felt like, well, I, I've seen a lot of individually powerful moments. I don't know how well it all hangs together as a single whole, though. Yeah, I think that might be true. Those individual moments that did work for me were the quiet moments kind of off in the margins um, and the details. And there's a lot of really good details in here. I really like the way that the movie camera like the the virtual camera sort of rests on the way that light plays through wade's face especially mm-hmm. when he's watching ember there's some really interesting refl- refraction going on in there and there are a lot of really striking images of characters just moving throughout their environment um there was one that i was thinking of where ember is walking down a city street she's kind of underneath a railroad track and the the metra or the the train tracks that run throughout element city literally run on water and so whenever a train passes by it sort of splashes water to either side of the track so she's walking underneath the track and then a train goes by overhead and she's surrounded by these curtains of water and she goes up and looks at her reflection And a lot of those images almost feel as though they're probably pretty direct interpretations of what could have been concept art. And maybe that's where the metaphor kind of starts to break down, because when you take an idea like people who are all made of the four classical elements and you throw all of them into a city together, I think that as an idea is a really powerful one. And everybody can go and interpret that in very different ways. But once that's put into practice, you get a lot of beautiful images that are strung together, but you don't necessarily get that connective tissue between them, which might be where the hangout nature of this movie sort of starts to come into play. Because it does feel as though the parts that hang in between the more pointed interactions between characters are us just spending time mostly with Ember. I kind of wish we'd spent a little bit more time with Wade because I did like him as a character quite a bit. Um, And he's a good foil for Ember, um, but we don't get a ton of the two of them bouncing off each other except as the plot dictates. And that I kind of found a little bit frustrating. Yeah, the the early scenes where they are still getting to know each other and they're at at right angles to each other (laughs) is uh, probably the the part where I feel like 
that's the most engaging in terms of just seeing kind of being interested in where this film is going to take us. I'm not very good while I'm watching a movie at sort of predicting where it's going to go next. I, I kind of tend to turn off that that side of my brain uh, or at least quiet it a little bit so that and just kind of go for the ride that the film's taking me on. So I don't know that I found it predictable, but I did think that um, when Ember and Wade are first, you know, meeting each other, there's a lot of space and possibility that is inherent in that premise that uh, I'm really interested in. But then the film kind of almost resolves that pretty early on. Like they, mm-hmm. they um, all basically over the course of a, of a montage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, there's, there's a reason why, you know, a montage is such powerful tools because you can do a lot of uh, narrative shorthand in a short amount of time just to get us where we need to go next. But I felt like once we got to that point, there wasn't really any place for their relationship to grow other than kind of like to have some grand romantic gestures happen, which are very nice. There's a, there's a sequence where Wade takes Ember to this underground, this flooded area where a a tree is that's according to lore sort of can flourish in any environment, fiery, watery, whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's a beautiful sequence. And the way that, Wade contrives to transport her into this underwater environment is very cool and um, pretty romantic. And that's really nice, but it it feels sort of like there's not a whole lot going on there other than the visuals. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was kind of like missing a little bit of the, um, the individual specificity of, you know, why they are drawn to each other and in what specific ways they feel their fieriness or wateriness in ways that are different from other fire people or water people. And that's kind of what I was maybe missing is that that specificity where the broad strokes metaphor can kind of be taken taken down and individuated in these characters in ways that feels specific to them rather than just their types that are being put through their paces. I mean, I think we get a little bit of that specificity fairly early on with Wade because he mentions offhand that he's not entirely sure what he wants to do with his life and he's bouncing from job to job and can't afford to lose the one that he has at City Hall. Um, Hence him and Ember bouncing off each other fairly early on in the film because he's inspecting her father's convenience store. And then Ember has that underlying uncertainty about who she is within the world, and she's trying to discover that and also be true to her home culture and to her parents, and trying to balance that with what she finds out her true wishes for herself and her life are. And I think that those two motivations are potentially very powerful ones, but they're not really made all that explicit at least for Wade, after that initial introduction. He seems pretty secure in who he is. He just doesn't know what he wants to do for a career necessarily. Whereas Ember doesn't seem to be particularly secure in who she is, although she appears to be that on the surface. She seems very confident. She's very happy where she is. She has no plans to leave Firetown at any point in her life until she essentially gets the call to adventure in the form of potentially having a store shut down. And those two motivations being kind of simpatico or almost like in harmony with each other, I think could be very good. But we don't get a lot of that 
interplay. We don't get a lot of these characters exploring who they are in relation to each other necessarily. We get a lot of that montage and we get a lot of those striking images. And in some places, I think that that does work beautifully. I love the way that Wade starts to bubble whenever Ember gets a little bit too close. That's a great visual, but it doesn't tell us a ton about how he can stand to be so close to her, or how she can stand to be so close to him while also being in danger of potentially being doused out. Yeah, and I think that there is a productive tension that I wish the the film had leaned into a little bit more. At one point, uh, Ember uh, tells Wade that she's afraid to get close to him because she says, you know, I could vaporize you, you could extinguish me, we can't be together. And that's that's a really interesting insight into the way that a romantic relationship works where um the the idea of losing yourself to another person or or somehow overcoming who they are like how how do two people become still are how are they able to be fully themselves and still in close relationship with one another is kind of the great mystery of love mm-hmm. in some ways and i feel like that was a, a gift that the film had given itself that it never opened <laughs> like mm-hmm. it, it was it was something that was voiced and then not really fully explored after that and i felt like maybe that was true of a lot of things in the movie where there are, are a lot of really interesting paths that could have gone but it kind of moved on to the next sort of uh metaphorical elements of the setting that it wanted to unpack and kind of left <laughs> that gift laying there and i it, it's it's not so much that it's that's bad. It's just it's disappointing that there are all these might have beens with this film that we never get to see. I think there's seeds of that there, though, and I, I agree with you. I'm a little disappointed that those seeds never really fully grow. But there is a moment where one character confesses to the other, um, "I think I'm failing," and the way that that character says that implies the level of vulnerability that you need to have in order to be in that sort of romantic relationship. And I think the movie kind of faints at addressing like how fire and water could potentially be together in that relationship. And it does require a lot of vulnerability and mutual care and trust. But And I don't want it to say that explicitly necessarily, (laughs) but at the same time, because there are so many of these different metaphors scattered around, I don't know that the movie explicitly manages to address that problem in a way that I found satisfying. Some things it does manage to button up pretty well, I thought, and that was one of the striking images that did make me tear up near the end of the film. Um, But in other cases... I don't know it's just it's kind of out there in the air and in the ether and maybe some of the images get really close at addressing that but i don't feel like i quite got the same closure that the characters in the movie do i i wonder if it's just i wonder if this film is just overcomplicated. yes <laughs> like i think maybe the issue that we're kind of dancing around with this you know the the central metaphor of you know elements living together in a city personified that there's a lot of fertile ground. And I think that Sohn and uh, his storytelling team needed to pick one and mm-hmm. kind of go with it and let the other stuff be there, but not really something that needed to be explicitly called out. And I feel like there weren't there weren't any darlings that were killed in the course of making this picture. And I think that maybe some needed to be in order for it to kind of 
reach that satisfying consummation of any one of these threads that it, it, it sets up for itself in the tapestry of its narrative. Yeah, I agree with you there. Well, uh, oh, some mixed feelings about this film, but there is a lot going on, and we're really interested to hear if any of you listeners out there have had a chance to see the new Pixar film. We know that there's some of you out there. It is Pixar, after all. Very interested to hear what your take is on any one of the directions that this film tries to take its elemental metaphor. You can uh, tweet us with those thoughts at Pod on Twitter. Hit us up on email at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Or we're over on Letterboxd. You can find us over there at Pod as well. Comment on the link to our review uh, on that site and uh, let us know your thoughts there. That's also a great way to tell us what you had in mind about Elemental. We're going to be talking about a slightly more straight ahead movie, at least in terms of the high concept narrative when we get to the edge of 17 in our watchlist segment. So stick around for that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Conversation. This is the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there who are helping us keep the conversation about movies going. And, you know, sometimes, Sarah, we don't get all of the conversation in that we would like to in a single episode, right? Like That's correct, yes. Last week, we, we talked about Green Room. We both really dug that film a lot. And I guess it's stuck in your mind because as the person in charge of our Twitter feed, you asked a slightly green room adjacent question for your Sunday poll. Yeah, I mostly wanted the um, excuse to be able to talk about green room a little bit more. But the Sunday poll was inspired by green room and specifically a conversation that the characters have about their desert island bands. Now, we're not talking about music here. We're talking about movies. So I asked our listeners, what's your desert island movie? If you could take only one with you to a desert island. Island, what would it be? And also why? So we heard back from a couple of people. Christy Olson said maybe Enchanted because that movie is super rewatchable. And Ron Sturry replied with Up. It has a grumpy old man on an island, me, a wonderful romance, <laughs> as I have, a kind of clueless kid like I used to be, a loyal and hilarious dog, I've had many, and a happy ending, what's not to like. And I think that's a great pick. And a lot of really good connections there, too. That That's a lot of great connections. There was even an, an Up-related uh, animated short before Elemental. So there's even mm-hmm. that tie-in. I really like that answer. Thanks for writing in, Ron. That was I, I liked the... You ticked all the boxes there. Uh, I, I got to gotta give it up for that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Kevin, what about you? Yeah, so I, I you got to find a way to narrow it down somehow with a question like this because you can only have one. Mm-hmm. And so I, I had to think, you know, like Christie, I think that you have to have a movie that's rewatchable. There are a lot of great movies that are masterpieces that you wouldn't really want to be rewatching over and over and over to pass the time on Desert Island. Mm-hmm. So that eliminates a fair few. Um, and you also want, at least I want, a movie that gives you a lot of bang for your buck. So there are lots of shorter movies out there that are quite good, but I was feeling like you really need a movie with some meat on its bones if you're going to go take it with you to a desert island and have only that. So that narrowed it down for me uh, to uh, 
Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. Oh, great that, pick. I mean, that movie's got it all. Uh, it's got adventure, action, romance, comedy, Toshiro drama. Mifune. Toshiro Mifune. <laughs> literally, like, like Ron said, what more could you could you want? Um, it's It's got it all. Oh, that's such a great pick. It's funny. I was thinking about um, the rewatchability of movies when I was thinking about my own pick. And... I decided to go with a movie that I actually haven't rewatched all that much because we're not going on the no other movies exist here kind of principle. Like those other movies exist and there are movies that I have seen plenty of times so much so that I could probably recite them to you. Um, And I decided to not go with any of those because I could just play those over in my head anyway as sort of a cheat. Um, So my Desert Island movie would actually be uh, Koganada's Columbus, the 2017 movie, specifically because it's the kind of movie where every time I watch it, I notice some other little detail. And also because I think it's a really good portrait of two people who are kind of stuck on their own individual desert islands in a way. They're Mm. not physically there, but mentally and emotionally, they certainly are. And I think it would be nice to not feel quite so alone in that same situation and also to be able to look at some really good modernist architecture while I'm at it. Hmm. I love that answer. That's a really that's a really good pick. I would not have that would not have even occurred to me, but that gotta give it up. That's a good one. Thank you. That's a good one. Uh, well, listeners, even though we are sharing what we've heard from you so far on this question, our proverbial mailbox is still open. So if you feel like sharing your Desert Island picks after you hear this episode, we're all ears. And now it's time for the Watchlist segment. This is the part of the show where one host picks a film that the other host hasn't seen. We both watch it together and then talk about it. Sarah, you were up this week for your pick, and you chose... A film by a director whose new film from this year we both liked quite a bit. That's Kelly Freeman Craig, and the movie we watched for the segment is her 2016 film, The Edge of Seventeen. Mm-hmm. This uh, stars Haley Steinfeld as a girl named Nadine, who, in the grand tradition of many movie teens, is having a hard time in <laughs> yeah. life. Uh, In Nadine's case, uh, she's struggling with the loss of her beloved father, uh, some social problems at school, and the recent discovery that her best friend in the entire world has struck up a romance with the brother whom Nadine hates. (laughs) And uh, things kind of go downhill from there. There's some, some harsh but fair counseling from Woody Harrelson's history teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, but the main focus here is on Nadine kind of coming to terms with what her life is, uh, the gulf between how it is and how she wants it to be, and her journey to kind of finding some way towards acceptance of that. Um, so that's basically what the film is about. I'm curious to know what made you think of this film specifically when you were considering what to pair with Elemental this week. So that idea of a young woman trying to figure out who she is and what she wants her life to be is a connective piece between this and Elemental. Um, Edge of 17 also takes place in Oregon, which our previous watch list pick, Green Room, also does. Mm -hmm. So um, I didn't remember that beforehand, but we'll just pretend that it's a connection (laughs) that I intended on anyway. Post facto connection. It definitely works. Um, And that's basically it other than I, I really liked talking about are you there god it's me margaret which kelly freeman craig also directed and which we discussed in episode 379 of this podcast 
I think we'd mentioned The Edge of Seventeen during that episode as well. You'd mentioned that you'd not seen it, and I figured it would be a good time to bring that one in as well. So um, a little bit more on the slightly tenuous connections between this and Elemental, which I guess makes them slightly more galaxy-brained. I don't know, but I am curious to know what you liked about it, if you liked it. Yeah, I, I did like it. I liked it a lot. Excellent. Um, and, you know, the the reason I feel like I'd put it off is... I think the trailers for this movie did oh, they're it terrible. A, a terrible disservice. So when I when I saw the trailers, it looked to me like uh, another one of those those bantery movies about a precocious teen and you know the the adult who sort of you know kind of gives her some tough love. And I feel like that's a kind of movie that I need to take in small doses. Ever since you know, kind of the the era of Juno and Gilmore Girls. It's not so much that those are bad. It's just I a little bit of it goes a long way for me. And so when I when I thought the Edge of Seventeen was that way, I was like, eh, I'll I'll give it a pass. I regret that now. I've come around to see the error of my ways. Thank you for <laughs> suggesting this for the watch list segment. Yeah, and I think this this film was just it was surprising to me, not just because it. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be, although, I mean, that's inherent in it being a surprise. But I think the the way that Craig is able to just explore her characters in ways that, that feel you know, hyper-specific um, and and deeply humane. I just, I really liked that a lot. I enjoyed how um, Nadine is, she doesn't feel like the heroine who gets off all the good singers, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I think of a movie like Juno where, you know, the, the main character is, you know, not like a untouchable heroine necessarily, but she does, she does feel very much like, She's the star of the show. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the ways that um, supporting characters in a movie like that sort of tend to revolve around the central character. Mm-hmm. And I really liked how Edge of Seventeen, a big part of Nadine's whole journey is coming to the realization that not everything revolves around her and everyone around her has their own lives and their own needs. And part of growing up for her is not just having that realization, but also acting accordingly and treating them uh, with that knowledge of their dignity and their their inner lives firmly in the front of her mind. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I just I liked I liked how that was the arc. I liked how Nadine was, you know, funny. I really like Steinfeld's performance in this, mm-hmm. but I also like how the, the film doesn't give her a break uh, with, and, and kind of is able to call her on, on her crap. Mm-hmm. And I think Craig's ability to walk that tightrope where we do like her, we do want the best for her. She's not insufferable, but it's very clear-eyed about the ways in which she is just kind of a, an immature teenager and needs to grow up a little bit. That's really nice, and I, I dug it quite a bit. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear that. This movie, um, I think, surprises me every time I watch it, and the things that work really, really work. So you have an incredible script, 
also written by Kelly Freeman Craig. You've got all of these players bouncing around as well, giving additional dimension to these characters who already have a lot of dimension just in the script and on the page. And then you also get that really assured direction. This was Kelly Freeman Craig's first movie, and it doesn't feel like a first movie. It feels so much more assured than that. And I think a lot of that comes from the ways that Craig is is willing to let the script breathe and let the players breathe and let them kind of have a little bit of fun with material that can be really acidic in places. And I love that Haley Steinfeld's character, Nadine, is absolutely terrible. There are multiple places in my notes where I wrote down, like, she is just the worst. And that's all that I had to say about it, because she really, truly is the worst. And like you said, she's very funny, and she's also very mean. And she's both of those things at once. And you don't get a character who is both very funny and very mean without being able to have the script to sort of back that up. And then also an actor who can manage to pull off that balance in between those two things. And then also having a director who trusts her players well enough to be able to pull that off too. And the fact that we get all three of those running on all cylinders throughout the entire runtime of this movie, I think is mostly just a joy to watch, even though it's also hell to watch Nadine (laughs) go through her own hell, largely of her own making too. And I like that everybody else around her is completely done with all of her crap as well. Like like you'd mentioned, she's putting everybody else through hell just as she is going through it too. And because everybody else is so completely tired of her, they're still not one-dimensional. Like you do get the sense that they all have their own individual lives, but they don't come across as villains. They don't come across as people who are trying to cramp her style. She's really the one who is making things much more difficult for everybody else around her. And we understand where that pain is coming from. And it's a very real pain, but it's also deeply inconvenient and unpleasant to be around. And the joy of this movie is that Kelly Freeman Craig is able to pull off that balance and also make us care so deeply for Nadine and hurt for her and also recognize that this kid desperately needs to grow up. I mean, so one one example of of what you're talking about is the fact that, you know, at the beginning of the film, you know, we see that, you know, Nadine kind of the the one person she feels closest to in the world, her father, you know, dies and, you know, ha- has a heart attack basically mm-hmm. with her in the car. She, you know, she basically watches him die. Mm-hmm. And that's a horrible thing to have happened to her. It's a horrible loss for her. And I feel like something that we don't see a lot in, in movies is somebody who suffers a loss like that being unsympathetic anyway, like... Mm-hmm. Uh, and something that we see Nadine do a couple of times in the film is try to leverage that loss to to win sympathy or or get out of being accountable for her actions, mm-hmm. um, which is a very it's a deeply unlikable thing for her to do. It's also I, not having suffered a loss like that. I don't know. I would know this from personal experience, but it seems like it would be tempting if you're a very self-absorbed teenagers sort of like maybe just work the angle a little bit just to try to get your way a little bit more often and that's interesting to to see in this movie that it presents that tremendous loss but it doesn't say it doesn't allow that to let her off the hook for the ways in which she's kind of allowed that to become a an emotional limp that she just she she favors throughout the entire film um until we get to that 
uh, great speech that uh, her brother Darian, played by Blake Jenner, of who I'd I'd first encountered uh, in Everybody Wants Some, mm-hmm. uh, just to see see him sort of like call her and say like I've got problems too related <laughs> to this, and you need to cut it out. I thought it, it was a very it's a very perceptive bit of writing from Craig. And I think the way that that Jenner and Steinfeld play these these two children kind of, you know, trying to grow up without a father, I think is is very touching and also but not saccharine at all. Mm-hmm. It's it's very I don't know, it, it feels very lived in and I like I like that quite a bit. I like that a lot. I really like that speech by Darian and I also really like that different characters respond to Nadine's manipulations in different ways as well. So you mentioned Woody Harrelson's Mr. Brunner a little bit earlier. I really like the chemistry that Haley Steinfeld and Woody Harrelson have in this movie. And I like that the character of Mr. Brunner simply does not care. (laughs) He is not interested in being dragged into any of the dramas of his students' lives. And I think he also gets that what Nadine needs is not just somebody to cave to her nastiness. I think she needs somebody to match her in it or at least to call her out in it. So she tries playing that angle of my father died so I can't turn in my homework and he asks her how long ago it happened and when she tells him that it's been 4 years he says a statute of limitations <laughs> I give people about a year for that which but, is you know, ice cold but <laughs> richly deserved. Well and then he <laughs> follows it up with a zinger about like maybe one of your grandparents won't stick around for too much longer either which is a terrible thing to say but it's also very funny in the moment and nadine has no choice but to respect it because it's the kind of thing that she would say because it's both very funny and very mean at the same time and very true and very true (laughs) yeah like she she had it coming yeah i I like harrelson's performance and i I think i was worried that he would be kind of like the kind of the the wisecracking teacher in the background who just kind of is there to get off a few laugh lines and just essentially give the protagonist somebody to bounce off of. And I think what I appreciate about Brenner is that he's not like he he's not a mentor figure. Like he just he doesn't care enough to be a mentor figure. He he's got his own life, he's got his own problems. And when a self-absorbed teen kind of plops into uh his chair across the, his desk and basically threatens to kill herself, he's just like, I don't I don't have time for this because I know you're just being dramatic. <laughs> yes. And and I think that kind of and the way that Harrelson plays it, again, isn't sort of like, you know, nudging like I'm just, you know, look, aren't I a stinker kind of kind mm-hmm. of line delivery? He's just he's just thoroughly done. And I feel like Harrelson excels at those sorts of uh line readings. He's thoroughly done and he's also still three-dimensional, even though we don't get to see quite as much of him as we do the rest of the characters too. Some of that dimension comes out in the performance. Some of it comes out in a late script reveal that, oh, it turns out he actually is married and has a child. And there's this whole life that he has that we're not aware of because Nadine's not aware of it. Maybe she could have known about it if she had been a little bit less self-absorbed, but that's not who she is. And so the revelation is just as surprising, I think, for the audience as it is for her. And it also makes perfect sense that he would have a life outside of the walls of his classroom and outside of the walls of his school. And we get that with all of these other characters, too. I don't think there's a single character who is completely one-dimensional in this movie. Some of them might be a couple of notes, but they're still 
just those notes are just as at odds enough against each other that they read like real characters instead of stock characters in some other teen movie. And I appreciate that. Even the, uh, you know, the, the bad boy character who she, she Nadine is fixated on and um, ends up kind of uh, in, in a car with him at one point, And he's, you know, going to take advantage of her. He's a bad person. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but he's not He's not just there to to be the the mustache twer- the peach fuzz twerp. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I thought I could make that joke, but uh, I I don't think I could do it. <clears throat> He's not just there to be sort of this two dimensional stock like jerk who's going to coerce her into something he's sort of he's a person he's a bad person but he's a person mm-hmm. rather than just a type and I, you know like you said it's just it's a uh, grace that the screenplay extends to all of its characters they all kind of get to have their say and that's that's nice uh both in the writing and also the way the the camera views them as well it's not just sort of you know people across a room but individuals who sort of inhabit their own little dramas i wanted to talk a little bit about the camera work too because i noticed a couple of things on this watch through that i think actually have a little bit of a through line to are you there god it's me margaret Uh yeah i'm assuming that you're thinking of the same shot that i might potentially be thinking of there's a moment fairly late in the film where nadine is in the bathroom at a tcby and she starts praying like basically out of desperation and she's she is essentially like berating God for giving her the life that she has. And the shot mirrors almost exactly the same shots that we get of Margaret in Are You There, God, as she is praying to. It's dead on profile shot. In this case, I think Nadine starts the shot by looking upward and then she kind of tilts her head a little bit down as she gets more and more acidic. And the way that Craig frames it, um, At first, Nadine is looking up literally at nothing. There's nothing on the wall that's right behind her. It's just kind of a pale blue. It's almost like she's talking to empty air. And the more angry she gets, the more the background seems a little bit clouded by some of the like notices on the wall to employees to, you know, to wash their hands. There's not a very showy camera move that's happening there, but it's still there nonetheless. And it kind of mirrors some of those same prayer shots in Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, but it's fairly understated. It's the only instance where I think this happened, but I saw it and I realized, oh, this this feels almost like a signature shot where we're getting inside the head of the main character of the movie and almost inside of their head a little bit spiritually as well. Yeah. I, I mean, watching that that scene, it almost felt like a, a uh, an audition reel for I should be the one to direct the yes. adaptation of Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, because it, it, it feels, you know, very uh, spiritually simpatico with with that film. I think it's interesting that Craig chooses a profile shot of the prayer scene rather than a, um, you know, a full on close up where we see all of her face. Mm-hmm. There's a profile which suggests the, the presence of another profile mm-hmm. off screen. Of course, we don't see that other profile, but the, that choice of camera angle suggests that it is a conversation of sorts. Mm-hmm. It's not just somebody talking to themselves in an empty room. Um, and that's, it's subtle. Um, and 
I might be reading too much into it, but I I prefer to think that it was entirely intentional on Craig's part and that she is intentionally drawing her audience into a view of prayer that is a conversation with another being rather than just uh, working one's out working one's own issues out in solitude. Hmm. I really like that reading that hadn't occurred to me before. So yeah, I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, I, I want to talk a little bit about you, you since you brought up Columbus. I didn't realize that Haley Lou Richardson was in this film. Yes. And she is tremendous in it. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, I don't have any follow up to that. I just wanted to sing her praises because I think she's great. Haley Lou Richardson is great, I think, in just about everything that she's in. I think Columbus was the movie that made me sit up and pay total attention to her, but I Same did here. see Edge of 17 in the theater. So I'd definitely seen Haley Lou Richardson before. And here, she's just the perfect supporting player, I think, because she is that person that you can kind of bounce other ideas off of. But she also gives that sense of being, you know, a fully developed character. And the way that she conveys so much with just a look or just a step or just the way that she holds herself when she's talking to Nadine. So her character is is named Krista. Nadine and Krista have been best friends since I think the second or first grade. And the two of them have that history together. And you can tell that they can tell what the other one is thinking just by the way that they hold themselves. And the way that Nadine uses that to her own advantage in order to hurt Krista after Krista has hurt her by starting to go out with Nadine's brother, I think is really telling because Krista shows that hurt in her body and in her face without necessarily having to come out directly and say, you're hurting me. And that's just a tremendous piece of performing from Haley Lou Richardson, who I think was in her late teens, potentially when she was still in it. Like she was pretty young at mm-hmm. that point. Yeah, the um, the performances in this are really good. And having seen Are You There, God's Me, Margaret, I think, you know, part of it is obviously like the actors are just very good at their jobs. I also feel like I, I, Craig is really good at getting these performances out of her actors or maybe choosing the takes that she gets. Uh, out of these actors, choosing the right ones where their nonverbal performances tell us so much about how they're reacting to uh, the experiences in any given scene. You mentioned mentioned how Richardson's Krista reacts when Nadine is is saying something hurtful to her and how you kind of see that in her posture and and on her face. You get that a lot also from the way Nadine... uh, the the way that she she lashes out and the way that Steinfeld kind of uses her face to really convey the the ways in which she's she's kind of just almost lashing out in the best defense is good offense kind of manner. It's yeah. really good. There's also a moment where uh, Nadine is at a party. She's been third wheeling it with her brother and Krista. Mm-hmm. They abandon her to go do something else. So she's by herself. She doesn't know anybody. I gotta say, I felt the moment where she's kind of milling around and looking at some tchotchkes on the hearth in the living room. Mm-hmm. I felt that moment in my bones. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because it's it's such a, a well-chosen detail. And the way uh, Steinfeld plays it is just sort of, you know, you don't know what else to do. So you'll just stare at like whatever random decor is, is, is around the room. Uh, wh- whomst among us has not 
had that experience at a party where they didn't quite fit in. <laughs> it's so painfully specific and it's so painfully accurate. Yeah, I feel that one in my bones too. Especially the moments where she takes her jacket off and holds it over her arms and she doesn't stands even put down the, the jacket. Yeah. yeah, and she stands just at the outside of a circle, hoping to be invited in and never fully making it in. Very understandably so, because she's horrible to literally everybody there, and the people that she doesn't know know her by reputation, either from her brother or just from around school, and you get a sense of the hurt that she feels from that and that also she doesn't know how to exist in the world in any other way. And at one point she directly comes right out and says it and she says, I have to live with myself for the rest of my life. And that's such a painful thing for anybody to have to realize. And the way that she says that tells you so much about how she feels about that and how little she knows about how to escape that. And so she's just going to keep on lashing out in this cycle unless she can find a way to break it. It's really heartbreaking, but it also feels very true. I I mean, it's indicative, like the, the way that she mills on the outside of that crowd at the party, it's something that needs to be extended to them and they're not receiving it, but also it requires a little bit of a of, of a leap of nerve that they can't quite bring themselves to do. And I think it's a great bookend for the very last scene where uh, she's she's with a, a boy named Irwin. Uh, they've kind of been uh, flirting with each other throughout the film, and he invites her to to an event. And afterwards, you know, there's a, there's a meet and greet, and she's kind of in the same place where he's talking to some other friends who came to this event as well. She's milling on the outside, and she's kind of about to turn away, and then he reaches and he pulls her in mm-hmm. to the circle, and they begin talking, and that's the note that it ends on. And it gives you hope. Like there's she she the fact that she's there at all is showing that she's grown enough to care about somebody other than herself. But also we see that she's finally kind of been able to be drawn into some circle, and that's exactly what she needs in that moment. Yeah, it doesn't feel like a resolution necessarily, but it does feel like a good turning point. And I agree with you. Like I love that that note is where we're left with this character because there's still a lot of things for her to learn and grow and do and we can trust that maybe she'll be able to figure her way out towards that she she begins the movie losing fellowship and she ends it with gaining fellowship it's wonderful it's a beautiful thing i'm so glad that you liked it yeah i enjoyed it quite a bit listeners if you uh were watching along with us and you had chance to watch the edge of 17 for the first time or for a rewatch we're definitely interested to know your thoughts you can hit us up on twitter email or letterbox as we've already described very interested to hear your thoughts there sarah Next week, we are going to be all about aliens all the time, which I know you're excited about. (laughs) Um, We are going to be talking about Wes Anderson's Asteroid City for our new release. Super jazzed about that. And I've decided that I'm going to pair it with a much more visceral view of an alien invasion with Steven Spielberg's 2005 remake of War of the Worlds, which... I was really surprised you hadn't seen, actually. Yeah, I don't know how this one quite escaped me. I probably would have been a little young for it when it first came out. Um, But I do love Tom Cruise, and I do love Aliens, and I'm here for probably not a good time in this movie. I I hear it's a bad time, but I'm here for it. I mean, it's... 
an, an experience. I I don't know. We, we we can talk more about it next week after I've seen the movie. Um, after you've seen the movie, uh, but yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about it with you. Can't wait to. Uh, that'll do it for this week's episode, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. Seeing and believing, of course, is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.